Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Is Dr. Vivian Sator, Alberta Health Services Medical Officer of Health, the South Zone. SACPA wishes to acknowledge the University of Lethbridge for its support. And I have to tell you all that as a non-profit organization, we rely upon you, all of you here at lunch, for, for uh, donations so that we're able to put these sessions on. We encourage you to join SACPA. It's only $25 a year. And Lisa and Annalise, if you would both stand up, you will be collecting the memberships. And there they are waiting for you. Uh, thanks also to Country Kitchen Catering, all the nice servers are moving around, clearing the plates now. They give us such a good lunch. We also are pleased that Shaw TV covers our presentations of SAGPA, and uh, you can see those on Sunday at 4.30. But they repeat it several times during the week if you miss the session. Um, CK, uh, CX, CKXU Radio, 88.3 FM, also covers the SAGPA sessions. Next week's session is entitled, Is the Idle No More Movement Still Active? And why should we care? The speaker is Laurie Braverock, and she will knock your head off. She is a great speaker, so don't miss next week's session. So we now come to our audience Q&A period, and I would invite Dr. Satop back to the podium. I must remind you that the session is recorded, and recorded in audio, and if your friends want to listen to it later, it'll be on the SACPA website. Um, www.sagpa.ca um, We have a microphone here for questions. Um, please first state your name and keep your preamble sh and your questions short. I'm sure we've got a lot of questions for Dr. Sattel. Dr. Sattel. Uh, my name is Bobby Pendergast. Thank you, Dr. Sattel, for your your interesting and informative talk. I just have a couple of quick questions. First of all, I was wondering if whooping cough vaccine is available for adults. And secondly, I was wondering if there is a chickenpox vaccine. So it's actually, we used to not provide whooping cough vaccine to adults. The last dose usually was at grade nine, so 14 or 15 years of age. The newer evidence actually shows what I was stating earlier is that people do not have lifelong immunity, especially most people in this room, including myself, who had whole cell vaccine as a child. So in fact, that whole cell vaccine is not nearly as immunogenic, doesn't create as much Im uh, immunity as does the vaccine we're using now. So the recommendation is now that individuals who've not had, and again, it's under 55, who've not had a dose of whooping cough containing vaccine after grade nine, so as a teenager or beyond, like after that, um, to get a dose. Um, disease in adults is minimal. 
right? So it's not... But if you have little grandchildren around, for example, um, who may not be immune, and we don't usually start that vaccine until two months, so it's, we start it pretty young, um, then we sort of recommend that individuals around a youngster, we cocoon cocoon that youngster with immunized individuals around them. So whooping cough right now, again, we had an outbreak in 2012. We had it in a different community than we did in 2009, so I suspect that probably next year or the year after we'll have another outbreak of whooping cough. The second question is chickenpox. So chickenpox is now part of the vaccination series of children. We give it at one year of age, and as of a year and a half ago, we're also giving a booster at preschool, so four years of age. This is, again, we're looking at the data, how that is going to impact chickenpox disease overall. Um, chickenpox, I'll just, a little segue, because the question is, what about seniors and chickenpox or people over 55 and chickenpox vaccine? I don't know if that's the question you're getting at. So again, chickenpox is a virus that when you get chickenpox, it actually goes and you, you know, the, the, the disease takes on its course in, in a child, it actually stays dormant in uh, this dorsal root ganglion of your spinal column in nerves. And it stays there, and it's happy it lives there. And when you're suddenly stressed or immunocompromised, or sometimes we don't know why, suddenly that virus reactivates. And it usually reactivates in, an, in the nerve, and it sort of in, on a nerve root, and it actually comes out on one part of your body. So some of you may have had zoster or shingles, and so shingles can be on one dermatome in the arm or on a part of the face, but very specifically where the one nerve uh, provides innervation. So, there, so again, many of us will have chickenpox. We've had chickenpox, and probably all of us in this room have. I had um, have this virus somewhere dormant in our spinal root column, spinal uh, dorsal root ganglia. Um, the shingles vaccine or Zostavax is a newer vaccine, and it isn't covered by healthcare, and it's actually quite expensive. And part of what a lot of my colleagues and I are really trying to propose is saying, okay, we have these childhood vaccines, but really we should be covering and enabling seniors and adults to also have free vaccines like tetanus, but also a pneumonia vaccine that you, pneumovax that you're aware of, which you only need one dose. Um, but chickenpox vaccine is another one. Why is that not covered, for example? So those are some of the things that is okay, one of my... Okay, I'm going to okay. ask you to keep your responses okay. short. Thank I just you. had to explain what chickenpox vaccine is because it's actually not a vaccine against chickenpox. You already have chickenpox in your system. But it actually, so that vaccine actually decreases the nerve pain. You know, people can have long ongoing nerve pain by 60%. And it decreases your chance of having this uh, zoster, the shingles. So it is a vaccine which we recommend. Um, and it will be by certain pharmacies will have it. Um, and it. But it's not readily available at public health, nor is it readily available at physician offices. But it is strongly recommended. Okay, sure. thanks. Next question, please. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you very much, doctor, for a very clear and concise presentation of immunization. Uh, I think that there's probably a number of people in our audience today uh, who support uh, prevention uh, rather than, than emphasis on treatment. And uh, I'm particularly glad to have you come to us today with this, with this message because of that. Um, the question that I have is that what is your take on the, the support that we're getting for preventive messages like yours, getting out to the public uh, in terms of 
funding by the provincial government. Thank you. So funding for the work that I'm doing? Yes. Well, I take this as part of my role. Um, there's a few designated spokespeople right now in Alberta who actually can provide this message. Um, I, I think I would like to see this message not only provided by people who are more directly uh, employed by either Alberta Health Services or by government, but actually everybody's role is public health. Everybody has a role to play. So if it's schools or churches or non-government organizations or whoever it may be or this group can actually also speak on behalf of health prevention and health promotion. I don't know if it needs more funding specifically. We need embracement and we need that engagement with the community. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Thank you for your presentation and the segue I have into, uh, into what I want to say. I'm Mary Shillington, and as part of public health, uh, there's some brochures out there on the table around seniors deserve quality public care. And so if you're interested in what that means, go out there. Uh, we had an interesting discussion at our table around what groups would not be um, uh, doing immunization, and there was, there was some information about that at the table. But one of the groups that we weren't sure about was what happens on the reserves. How many are there immunization? Do the, the public health nurses go into homes there, or how is that done there? And, and are they generally, uh, my su suspicion is that the general, they would do immunization, but some wouldn't just because of lack of transportation or whatever. So okay. well, that's my question. Yeah, so the immunization rates through First Nations Inuit health jurisdiction is excellent. On both the reserve in the reserves in the south here, Pecani and Blood Reserve, they have excellent immunization rates. They go all out. They go to homes. They give gifts to parents. They really go all out and do that. Um, and so we do not see these vaccine-preventable illness outbreaks. They do not impact our reserves on the ones that I've, ex I've shown as an example here. So, yeah, we need to take that as an example to adopt that beyond the reserve, to be honest with you. Okay, thank you. Next question. Oh. Hi, my name is Sherry, and... Um I guess before I thank you, well, thank you for your presentation, but what's uh, fun too is the whole group here that the uh, presenter from last week we get to sit at the table with and, um, and also the story we get to revisit about the farm. So I'm really thankful that we see the presenters also joining into the audience and making it such a long-term collective experience. I have three questions. You can answer one or all. Uh, the first one would be if a child hasn't been immunized or not gotten all of them, at if they jump in to get an immunization or an adult, how effective is that single treatment? Uh, second one would be for those people that are educated that have a concern about or the, the risks of immunization, what are those or where could we look to go find that side of it? And the third one is for the group in southern Alberta that's generally not getting the immunization, can you give the reason why quickly? Okay, could you tell us your name, please? Sherry, this time I did say it. I lost my mic, thank you. <laughs> okay, Sherry, so if I remember the, correction, the, the question, so one, if you start immunizing not at two months of age, but maybe at 12 years of age, so then the immunization schedule may be slightly different because you may not need as many doses because your immune system is more mature. So yes, we still recommend starting your vaccination program whenever if you're not immune to measles and you're 20 years old, we need to start that if you, haven't, if you haven't had disease. So, yes, there are specific guidelines based on the evidence which vaccines, how many doses you need at a given age group. 
and yes, they're effective. Of course, some of these diseases are worse in childhood. Measles is actually a compl high complication rates in adults, chickenpox as well, and mumps is worse in adults than children. So some of these illnesses are worth to do start that immunization if you suddenly change your mind at an, as a, at an older age. Um, the second question is if, uh, so, um, no, the third question I remember, the second question was, that are opposing it or the what you'd mentioned, some of the risks, what are oh, they yeah, or the where would we find them? Yeah. yeah, so there's many different misconceptions. And if you Google vaccine.com is even worse than vaccine.ca or whatever American websites, it's quite amazing what's on there. It's, it, it, it's, it's amazing. So there are some good websites, and I can send that information to um, Newt or, or to yourself that can be posted because there are some very good evidence-based websites that you can get that adequate information on. You can always call a local public health office because the nurses are trained to have these discussions and have a lot of resources available to you around immunization and the specific questions that people come up with. Okay, thank you. The next question, please. Yeah, so the reason why people aren't immunizing, I think that's more the question. I think, again, there's multiple reasons why, and I think it's, again, making sure people have the right information and have an ability to make an informed decision without any further peer pressures or other uh, influence on that. Okay, fine. Uh, please limit um, your question to one question. Thank you. Bev Mundlatherstone, Bev, Bev thank you for your talk. It's very important. Um, my question has to do with where the immunizations take place. When I was a kid, we were immunized in the schools. It seems to me my question revolves around the whole issue of making it easy as possible for people to immunize their children. So uh, it, if parents have to take a child to a clinic to immunize them, that seems to be an opt-in model, whereas an opt-out model seems to be an easier model for parents. So if children were immunized in the school system and then they had to opt their children out of being immunized, wouldn't that be a, a way of catching more of the children? So there are a number of different jurisdictions, that's a good question, who have tried different models. So yes, we know that the school system, we get much more uptake in vaccine than if it's not in the school. We saw that with HPV vaccine, human papilloma virus vaccine in the Catholic school system. Very little uptake as compared to the public school system. Yet, actually, here we actually had people give consent in the Catholic system. Similar. Again, it's a whole different topic. But yes, we know that school delivery catches more individuals because access is easy. We also know that when kids are up to a year of age, people, people who do immunize their children, they're immunized. The 18 month dose is much less because kid parents are working again. And so there's other barriers that, or people, some just forget, and some, there's other barriers that suddenly come into place. There are some jurisdictions, then again, so back to, to further to your question, is to have something like a signed declination. So instead of saying, you're going to sign here so you get immunized, no, everybody's going to get immunized. It's expected you're immunized. If you don't immunize, you have to actually officially sign declination. And some jurisdictions in Canada do that. Some healthcare organizations have tried that with their staff as well around influenza immunization, for example. And there's differing results. But people who strongly seek not to, choose not to immunize their children, and again, that's a free choice, they will then sign those letters of declination. So we've seen that in other jurisdictions in Canada, actually. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Okay. 
I have two questions. Uh, please tell us your name. My name is Kelsey Lysak. Um, my first question is, we talk about vaccination effectiveness waning. Is that true with the measles vaccine? Do we need boosters as adults? Measles is a good vaccine. You do not need a booster. No? Okay. Um, my second question is that if you know that reporting rates for illnesses are low, how can you say the vaccine is as effective as it is when those people who are vaccinated are more likely to believe they're immune and less likely to report their illness than those that are not vaccinated? Okay, so we know there's underreporting. You're saying that if there's underreporting of illness? It would be more likely that people who are vaccinated would believe they're immune to the disease and would be less likely to report their illness than those that are not vaccinated. Yeah, I don't think we see that. So, I mean, I see the point that you're coming from, but I don't think we've seen that in practice because we have some other active surveillance systems out there. For example, people with runny nose and cough and low-grade fever. There is actually different systems in place right now in Alberta that are passive surveillance systems so that we actually have an idea what viruses are circulating in the community. So we're actually not picking up these types of things in the community either. So this is, again, so if there was lots of measles out there, we would be picking it up through different mechanisms. Only if people are going to their physicians, though. So if a person does not believe that they're sick, thinks it's a cold, they stay home, it would not be reported to you. So your numbers could be skewed. Right. So we see that with pertussis. That's exactly what's happening with pertussis because people don't have necessarily... The, they, we do see that waning immunity. We also know, though, at some point, like with measles, 30% have a complication rate. Those individuals will have to seek medical attention at some point in time with pneumonia and, and whatever, right? So... We know that even if measles hasn't been here, somebody's asked me that question, has measles been here? Highly unlikely, because we haven't seen anybody else with a disease that has such severe complications. Um, we would see some individuals to medical, coming to medical attention. Okay, thank you. On to the next questioner, please. Hi, my name is Henning Mundell. And my question is in relation to your sort of quick comment that you actually feel it should be up to individual choice. Now, my question is, for, for diseases as communicable as measles, as a community, don't we have a responsibility? We've, we've greatly reduced uh, smoking in public places. We have seatbelt laws over major objections. But here we're dealing with something that can affect our whole society. It can kill other people, not, not just the people that make the decision. Why shouldn't it be a community uh, re regulated thing or national regulation. Okay, thank you. Yep. A very good question, and we, as my colleagues, banter that about a lot. Should we make this mandatory even in healthcare? We have healthcare providers who refuse immunization, and they may be in the hospital spreading disease. Right? And we know that with influenza, there are good studies out there that medical students and residents may not have any symptoms, maybe just a runny nose, and they're spreading influenza disease in the hospital. So, yes, so again, that's something directly in hospitals. So it, it, in some jurisdictions, yes, there is mandatory immunization. There's mixed messaging, because if you make something mandatory, you often get a lot more uh, sort of these activist groups um, taking hold. Like if you make fluoride mandatory in the water, we've all heard about fluoride, and we're not going to go there. But if it's there and you have no control over it, there's other aspects that come into play then and so uh, again if it's mandatory or not uh, hopefully people can make the right decision um, it, it's again one of these things do you make more law or do you make do you allow people to make the right choice and if people are not making the right choice for on behalf of society is what you're talking about do we need to step into that yeah. and so I know this is a question that banters about all the time we have that question and right now it's a freedom of choice 
So it's a unique spot in Alberta, yes. Okay. We have these outbreaks. Thank you. Next question, please. My name is Mark Gettle. I had shingles, and I must say it was the most painful thing I've ever had. And uh, within three or four days of the rash appearing, I was prescribed antivirals, which apparently just limited my shingles to about two weeks. And uh, five years later, now I've taken these Zostrix or whatever it's called uh, vaccine. So I've read also that that vaccine isn't necessarily that effective. It was only $60, so it's not that expensive, and my medical insurance uh, did cover it. So uh, I think $60 for the pain that, that was there is well worth, mm -hmm. well, well worth money well spent. However, my question is, with the antiviral, would that have possibly gotten rid of the virus from my body? And number two, how effective is the vaccine? So the vaccine, and I can send a link to that as well. There's some good information on that. But we say it's about 60% effective. So, again, it's not 100%. It's not as good as measles vaccine because you already have the disease in your body. Like, the virus is still there. It's just minimizing the pain, as you said, the duration and also possibility. But especially the duration and, and um, severity of the uh, recurrence, let's say, of the of the, these shingles, and then also the pain thereafter, that what we call post-herpetic neuralgia. So I'm glad it's gone down to sixty dollars. I agree, it's well worth. It's not 100, percent but it's it's better than nothing. Okay, uh, more questions, please. I'm going to ask a question. In the meantime, Dr. Sato, in your introduction, you said that you had also worked in developing countries, and at lunch you told me that was Pakistan. I'm wondering whether you have any feel for what is happening vis-a-vis -vis measles in the newly emerging countries, and by those I mean the BRIC countries, Brazil, India, um, China, and Russia, Russia and China, in that order. And I, I select those because there's been a lot of attention to development, including health development, over the last two or three decades. Yeah, so I can't very informatively speak on the separate, like on those separate countries. We know that we've had increased incidence in all of Europe, the West Europe, East Europe, including Russia. We had increased incidence in South America, including Brazil and Mexico. And this is all recent in the last two years. So this is more so than what we've seen for uh, decades. So you're saying there's a bit of a resurgence? There's a resurgence of measles. Why it's very difficult. We're, again, trying to eradicate after polio, but we we'll have a long ways to go. Thank you. Next question, please. This is an answer to Trevor. Um, through the Rot Rotary International, um, there's a worldwide plan to try to eradicate polio. And with the polio vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella, rubella are also given at the same time. So these, these immunizations are given at the same time as polio, and that would be also in the BRIC countries as well as other countries. I'm sure we have some more questions. I was going to say, see, I, everybody learns something. I learned something now, too. Thank you. <laughs> At the risk of uh, being cut off by the moderator, uh, my name is Knut Peterson, by the way. If uh, it's more than one question, ask it one at a time, please. I, I'm just wondering if there's any vaccinations available for people living next to a drilling rig. We have... Uh, we have uh, oil exploration ha maybe happening in Lethbridge within uh, the municipal 
boundaries. Uh, is any have you been contacted, by the way, in terms of uh, safety measures? No, I have not been from a public health perspective. Again, I speak on trying to make sure we have a healthy public and information that needs to go out. And so I have not been contacted on in that regard. But pushing but that, there's no vaccine for that, unfortunately. <laughs> pushing that a little further, there are serious health risks associated with drilling and, and fracking or hydraulic fracturing for gas and oil. And I'm wondering whether Alberta Health Services generally would follow your excellent example on being prepared in advance for the eventualities and the accidents that occur. Yes, yeah, so we do a lot of work with our partner organizations and communities and municipalities on emergency preparedness. Uh, we haven't had specific discussion around this piece um, that I've been involved in, uh, in that sense. And I think from a cost perspective, there's lots of indirect costs as well, right? So, I mean, direct impacts, but also what about the indirect impacts of water usage? And there isn't really that much water down here, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think it's a, it's a, I think a topic for a completely different day. <laughs> yeah, we, we certainly agree with that. But we did have a session here at SAGPA, uh, last month where the oil company gave a presentation on the so-called Penny Project, which is on the west side of Lethbridge. And um, it would seem to me as though it is opportune to consider the health risks that are involved. And I'm sure that um, had you heard the expressions of concern from the floor at that session, you would be urging your health services to get prepared on that one too. Yeah, and, and the medical office of health, my colleagues have been involved because, again, we're seeing this increased fracking, Rocky Mountain House down to Nanton, and now it's coming down here as well. So we definitely are aware, but, again, I haven't been directly involved in the, the local propositions. But I will connect with my uh, environmental health counterpart. And we are reassured. <laughs> Uh, Mary Shillington again. Uh, um, a question was raised by somebody as to who actually does the quarantining and overseeing that, that it actually happens. Very good question. Um, so under the Public Health Act, there are a number of different duties that and, and powers that a medical officer of health has. And the Public Health Act is paramount to any other act with the exception of human rights. So if I need to shut down an airport, a school, or anything else, I can do that. Of course, I don't, you don't do this without reason. So quarantine is a specific order under the Public Health Act. And so, yes, I can write specific orders. But at one point, when you don't know who's been exposed where, it becomes a mute point. And at the end, it's just a piece of paper. And you get a lot of people saying, oh, this person made me do this. And then people don't adopt it. I think if we give people the right information and say, you know what, this is what we really need to do, this is what I need you to do in order to protect the community and the vulnerable individuals around you, people are much more likely to do that. When we talk about risk management, if you tell people and you mandate people to do things, there's usually much more anxiety, uh, noise around it than if you say, you know what, this is the reason. You actually have a reasonable conversation with somebody. So I'm not taking this heavy-handed. And I think this approach, I've had a lot of feedback back from communities, from churches, from schools, et cetera, that they appreciate this approach. And it seems to be working because it gives everybody power to protect the public. Everybody has a role there. It's not just me mandating people to do that. I could do that, have a big force, police force or army, whatever else. Whatever it takes to protect the public, that's what it states in the Public Health Act. I can do. Okay. I'm supposed to do. But it's not heavy-handed. I don't like it that way. 
Thank you. Next question, please. My name is Van Christu. Um, I, I will touch on a subject that's not directly related to immunization, but, but I'm wondering about the public health uh, attitude towards um, these floods that we've had in Alberta and the amount, the, the problem that's developed with black mold uh, in these, in both High River and Calgary. Um, what, what is being done in terms of uh, educating people regarding the dangers of toxic black mold? So I just caution the words using toxic, toxic, I guess, because there's many different molds. Molds are ubiquitous. And so especially when there's moisture, right? So again, uh, testing air, sampling, and all this kind of stuff. I and mean, we have to really be cautious how you manage, do risk assessment and risk management, and communication of what is actually toxic about different molds. There are absolutely, there are very poisonous toxins that molds can produce, right? But we have to know which molds they are. There's stachybotrys, et cetera. Uh, most molds do not cause a whole lot of disease, if you have some underlying lung conditions, et cetera, of course, then you have some more uh, risks. So we work at an individual level. If there's a concern in a facility, we provide information around that and work with the facility or with restoration companies. Um, if there's in individual homes, again, we don't have jurisdiction in an individual home, but we do provide a lot of information to individuals on how to remediate properly. Um, we don't write, if it's in a non-owner occupied home, so let's say in an apartment dwelling, then there are certain aspects that an apartment owner needs to meet. And under the Public Health Act, again, there's nuisances and there's certain housing standards that need to be met. So those we will enforce. But if it's in an individual private home, we provide information and really strongly recommend people um, remediate as is necessary. Okay, thank you. This will have to be the last question. Please go ahead. Wondering what the side uh, please tell us your name. Tatiana. Wondering what the side effects are of the measles vaccine and just what you would say to a mother who's considering taking her child in and worried about losing their child that day as they know him. Yeah, again, Thank if you. we'd have uh, children dying of measles vaccine when they're getting administered measles vaccine, we would know that. There's, a, again, rigorous testing, rigorous reporting of adverse events, adverse events due to vaccine, et cetera. So, again, all the millions of doses of vaccine that have been given across the world with this vaccine, um, that, that is monitored. Um, it's safe. It's effective. Uh, we've seen, you've seen the numbers, how that has decreased the numbers. I didn't put there beside people dying from the vaccine because, really, if there's a lot of people dying from the vaccine, the vaccine would have been pulled off the market. Okay, I, I review every single adverse event for the last six years here in Southern Alberta. I'm not seeing that. So some kids have a little reaction, and two weeks later you can get a few little measles uh, spots or a few little uh, chickenpox spots if your child also has chickenpox with it, the uh, component within it. Um, and you, because it's a live virus vaccine, you can get a little bit of fever, et cetera. But other than that, very few um, allergic reactions or whatever else that happened to it. Like very few serious reactions as opposed to the risks of 30% complication rate of achieving measles. Okay. Complications. I'm going to squeeze one last question in. Please go ahead. Short question, please, and short answer. Uh, Bev Trainer, I'm going back to the uh, issue, uh, the mold issue that was just uh, put forth. I think the, the, my question is about black mold okay, and, and a toxic mold. And how well are the people, and I'm very concerned uh, because I have dear friends in High River. And from what I can hear, there's not the education happening in High River as to the dangers of the toxic molds, one of them being black mold. 
And that's, so my question to you is, what is being done to keep these people safe and educate them about toxic mold? Yeah, so I can bump that over to my colleagues who look after High River jurisdiction. I was a physician in High River for some time. Um, so I, I don't know exactly what they're doing. We know, I know that what we do locally here, we provide a lot of information to individuals and make sure that's accessible. Again, if there's concerns about an apartment building that somebody's renting a place, then that we have to make sure that can get back to public health and we can actually work with the manager. But the specific information happening in High River through Calgary, I, don't, I can't answer that question. It's not, it's not in my jurisdiction, so I don't know the details. I just know that there's information out available, but I don't know how it's being disseminated. Okay. Sagma topics are always stimulating. There are always more questions than answers, but we do have a reputation of starting and finishing on time. Please join me in thanking Dr. Sutter.